Hello and welcome to the Modern Romantic Podcast, where we celebrate romanticism through passionate people doing incredible things. Hi, I'm Trey. Uh, you can find me at OrphyTunes on most social media platforms. And tonight I am joined by my co-host, uh, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi. Yay. <laughs> so bad. Oh that my God. so bad. I am excited to, to talk to who we have here today. We have Larry Hall with us. He is the chairman of the really there's not even this is probably the coolest episode we're ever gonna have because and i'm gonna try really hard not to say the word cool i'm gonna get my thesaurus out and i'm going to like come up with other words like fantastic and awesome and we'll see what happens there but um i can't wait to talk to larry about the jim irsay collection because that collection is a bit of history and rock and roll and pop culture and it's got a it's it's amazing. So we're here to talk to him today. Welcome to the show, Larry. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, both of you having me on today. Um, and thanks for that warm welcome. It's uh, it's an iconic and eclectic and just a culturally significant combination of uh, Mr. Say's passions. And um, can't wait to talk with you about it. Yeah. A yeah. little later. In we always do this a little later in the show uh you mentioned that you've got a uh surprise for us and that we will get to uh the collection a little bit later and talk some specifics uh but there one of the first things that i that i would like our listening audience to know is how did you get started in the uh jim irsay collection because that's just not something you just walk into and apply for that is correct. Um, I'm uh, very fortunate uh, to be proudly from the west side of Cincinnati. Grew up in Cincy, used to park cars for Reds and Bengals games through high school and, and early college. And once I graduated, I actually got um, an offer to work full time for the Bengals as their assistant ticket manager. And about a year and a half after that, that was the 1983 football season. Uh, the Colts moved from Baltimore to Indianapolis, uh, March 29 of 84. And they called and asked permission to speak with me about being the lead ticket person. I came over and interviewed with um, Mr. Ursay, his father, Robert, then a couple other people all day long. And at the end of the day, they said, you're our guy. We want you to come lead our ticket office. So I drove back to Cincy and told my wife, who's one of nine kids, that um, we're going to move to Indianapolis. And she said, I didn't think you had much of a chance for that job. <laughs> and as it turns out, I guess I did. But uh, I, it's been a real blessing and a pleasure. Um, to, I, I ran the Colts ticket office for 35 seasons, 35 football seasons. Wonderful times. Great memories. Um some challenging years. I saw one in 15 and I saw us raise the trophy after winning the Super Bowl. So some fantastic memories. I feel like I've lived three or four lifetimes and just feel very, very fortunate. Um, thanks to the Ursay family to experience that. And then segueing into answering your question, actually, um, about five years ago, Mr. Ursay, you know, said, hey, we really need to aggregate our, our historical affairs and I'd love you to oversee that some other special projects, things, and then and also oversee uh, my collection uh, of artifacts. And I said, well, that's fantastic. I'd love to do it. You know, took it very, very seriously, um, read a lot, uh, made a lot of new friends at like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a number of other places, learned a, a fair amount about it. Um, custodial care is very important to me and how we take care of the artifacts. But um, that's really how I segued from, and you know, this is my 40th football season with the Colts. Uh, but overseeing the collection has just been a real joy and, and working with Mr. Ursay, we're only 11 months to the day apart in age. And so our chronology of time is very similar, you know, man on the moon, I was nine, he was 10. I mean, there's just these semblances back and forth of, of how, uh, you know, sort of we, we see things similarly when it comes to looking for artifacts and his passion for rock and roll, pop culture and American history has manifested into this really, really cool 
collection, as Emily alluded to, um, it's really special. I think I, I really I've, I've looked and I really can't see another collection that fits the same mold that 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 Mr. Ursay has because of those unique you know, traits. So I feel like we literally do have something for everyone. I would say there's everybody's going to get some level of appreciation out of it. For sure. At least an American. Right. Yeah, for sure. Every and and it really even well, and even when you talk worldwide, it's funny you mentioned that because um, one of one of the wildest times I've had uh, at auction was at Christie's auction house in New York. David Gilmore of Pink Floyd auctioned off 127 items. And um, there were people there from all over the world. And so uh, music, I think, is something we can agree transcends country lines, borders. Yeah. Right. And so um, there is actually a plan in place to take the collection to Europe in 2025. Cool. I didn't mention that to you earlier, but uh, so we're excited about that possibility. And I do think that's one thing uh, that definitely is a common thread uh, here again, the music piece. Um, we've got a John Coltrane saxophone that he played through a summer tour in Japan back in 1966. Oh, awesome. So pretty significant, you know, timeline here again, American history, music all kind of melding together. That is okay. I'm not using the word cool, right? So you can use it all you want. It's incredible. That is that is stellar. That yes. is yeah. that's a yeah. good word. Stellar. Wait, well done. Well, I, I want to talk about the scope of what this collection actually means because I think for anyone who maybe doesn't know, this collection does a couple of things that a lot of museum or art type collections don't do. And that is it travels and it's free. Right? That's right. It's it's very important to Mr. Ursay that um, the inspiration uh, that he has received from the artists or the moments in time or the artifacts themselves gets transferred to other people. He wants to share that joy. Uh, and th these are my words, uh, but certainly fit, I think, you know, what he he, he feels. So at his expense, um, we take very, very good, good care of the artifacts and, and carefully have them um, uh, shipped properly to a designated location. And then uh, he has an all-star band that travels with him and they put on a free concert. The exhibition's free. It's a wonderful time. Our next one is in Boston this coming weekend on July the uh, 15th. A Saturday night at TD Garden, where the uh, Celtics and Bruins play. Mm -hmm. If you're in the uh, Northeast or you have the desire to travel, please come see us. Um, and if you simply go to JimMersayCollection.com, you can get uh, registration information there to, uh, to to get that free admission. That sounds awesome. Uh, we have our first question of the night, and someone asked, does anyone get to play the guitars? Actually, uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd is a great, fantastic guitar player. He's he's a rock star uh, of the nth degree to me. Um, we do make sure that Tiger is one of the guitars that he's played. He's also played the Black Strat. Um, I saw an interview that he did, that Kenny Wayne Shepherd did, when someone asked, "Hey, you know, should you really be playing the, 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 this this rare guitar?" And, and his line, I, and I may be paraphrasing here, he said something like, "Look, we're not painting over the Mona Lisa here." He goes, "I'm playing it." set up the way that it was left but last by the artist in other words the way jerry garcia had tiger set up at the end and, he, and jerry used it uh at soldier field which was his last live performance tiger um he played that guitar meaning kenny wayne shepherd played it uh the same way it was set up so we don't change anything on it that's you know this this custodial care is very very important to us and although um uh it's played it's carefully put back and he's so to the answer to the question short answer is yes um, not all of them are, are, are going to be ones that we'd want to have played. Um, uh, many guitar folks know pre-war Martin as a term, right? 
And when they hear that, uh, it usually is a reference to, to World War II. Well, we have a pre-Civil War Martin, a little parlor guitar. That's obviously very fragile. We would never have someone try to play that. So it just is a matter of, of, of what the guitar is. But really, only a few of them have been played publicly since um, they've, they've been a part of the collection. We have a couple of great guys, Mark and Eric Johnson, they're twin brothers. Um, they look after the guitars and, and, and they're historians of guitars. They know music. They have a recording studio themselves. Uh, and they're great friends of mine, I'm happy to say. That is incredible. Um, just a, like as a as a musician myself, like I'm a singer, but I have grown up listening to a lot of the people that we were talking about in the green room uh, just before the show started. And I, yeah, I need to come see this collection at some point because I would just be just drooling at all of the different guitars that you've got. We'd love to have you come. Typically, um, uh, it started off uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, a couple of years ago, the first tour stop. And it was much, much smaller then. Uh, it was really Mr. Ursius saying, hey, I'd really like to display some of the artifacts. Uh, and um, I said, well, when are you thinking about it? He said, oh, you know, a couple of weeks when we play the Titans in Tennessee. And I said, well, all right, let me start working on that. And it took a, a bit to pull it together. But uh, we had a, a much smaller uh, event to start. It was only 10 guitars. We also had the Beatles drum kit used over 200 times in studio and 100 times on stage by Ringo Starr, right? And the drum head from the Ed Sullivan show, those made the trip, okay? And then um, there were a number of other things that we had in Nashville, but now we take um, over 100 artifacts. Uh, but we started in Nashville a couple of years ago, went to uh, uh, Washington, D.C., Austin, L.A., New York, Chicago, Indy, San Fran, uh, Las Vegas, and now this coming Saturday night, Boston. So this will be our 10th stop. Um, it's it's really fun for us to do it. Um, I love to see people's faces when they see some of these iconic artifacts. It's just, uh, I really think what it does is it, it takes them back. It's a nostalgia thing. Um, th there are moments in time with some of these uh, artifacts that that are historic. Uh, the Beatles drum head I referenced from the Sullivan show. So you get this Ludwig, you know, drum head, it's the Beatles and Ringo Starr. You add that to the Ed Sullivan show, and now it's this confluence, this coming together of these of these things that are so special. I argue that that's really a part of American history as much as it is this music, right? Um, and then the, the, the piece that resonates more than any with me would be each individual had through their own eyes. And, and, and Trey, you were just talking about this, uh, you know, drooling over seeing them. But I'm sure there are specific songs or specific things from an artist or the artifact may, may elicit back out, um, dare I say, even a romanticism to it since we're on the modern Absolutely. romantic. <laughs> of course. How do you, of all the locations that you're going to, how do you decide on a particular location? Well, Mr. Ursay really, you know, it's his name on the collection. And he, he gets to pick and choose where, where he'd like, he'd like to have the collection go. Um, a lot of major metropolitan cities are in consideration. Um, you heard me kind of crisscross the country there, right? We touched both coast, north, south. Um, here again, we talked about and are looking at possibly having Europe come up, if yeah. uh, not next year, probably the year after. So really, I think any major metropolitan areas in play, um, and, you know, we've talked about Phoenix and New Orleans and, you know, nothing's eminent into those cities, but, you know, places in Florida that we haven't been to. Um, I really feel like it, because of what we talked about earlier, meaning there's something for everyone in the collection, we'd be hard pressed not to find a place where most people would come and not enjoy seeing these artifacts. They're just um, here again, so iconic and eclectic. And, and, and I think 
tapping into your own uh, e emotions of memory and the way in which music in particular, but certainly books can do the same thing. We've got first editions of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Fenn. Um, there's Amelia Earhart's For the Fun of It that she inscribed. Uh, so there are some really cool pieces there. Uh, probably the most significant, of course, would be really the first thing that Jim Irsay pot that was of significant size uh, and cost would be Jack Kerouac's On the Road Scroll. And for those not familiar with it, um, 119 feet long, 119 feet, seven, uh, seven eighths, I think it is. Um, but it, for Kerouac, he is sort of a coming of age. It's, it's sort of the beat generation genesis written in the early 50s, published in the late 50s. And we've displayed that on what would have been Kerouac's 100th birthday. That was the, the, the uh, event we had in Los Angeles. And we, we had the entire thing unfurled in a long, long, long case, right? Um, and a lot of other cool things around it and some really cool readings that were done, some spoken words. So um, we do, the show changes a little bit. Um, we try to change out some of the artifacts, make sure there's always something new and fresh. Uh, recently acquired an Eddie Van Halen guitar that's going to be in Boston. Uh, we also uh, recently acquired an acoustic that Bob Dylan played at Bill Clinton's inauguration. Okay. Um, so here again, I'm going back to artifact artist. You know, Bob Dylan the, the, is really kind of the poet laureate of a generation. And um, I love that the, the, the other uh, guitar that we have from Dylan, Dylan goes electric. So there's this Newport Folk Festival every year. And back in the early 60s, he shows up and does his usual great job of, you know, telling great stories on his acoustic takes a break and after the intermission comes out and plays an electrical, as I'm told, half the people booed, half the people cheered, right? Mm -hmm. But that's this moment in time where Dylan said, hey, look, I can change and morph, continue to reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. That guitar has those same traits that I described with the Beatles, Ed Sullivan drumhead, right? There's a number of things in the collection that do that. And I just think um, that's the really super wow moment for me. Um, I, I know one description I heard a different appraiser said something like the fewer words you can describe something and have people understand what it is and give you that eye popping jaw dropping sort of a thing. And that's where you say Beatles drumhead Sullivan show four words. And most people that know music or pop culture or American history even would say, wow, they have that in the Jim Mercy collection. Yes, we do. Um, it's diverse enough that, um, you know, most locations were able to bring this uh, uh, Hunter S Thompson, uh, it's called the Great Red Shark. This car is 18 and a half feet long. Uh, it belonged to, to Hunter S. Thompson. Mr. C acquired it directly from uh, his widow. And it was used in the in the movie uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Okay. Uh, Johnny Depp played Hunter S. Thompson. So that's a cool piece. It's a convertible red, bright red, uh, just a Caprice classic from 1973. It's a beautiful car. Um, there's a number of different things in the collection that uh, here again, eclectic and iconic and I'm going to say cool because Emily hasn't said it in the last couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd work that in for her. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate You're welcome. That. I get like a freebie now. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> that is cool. I love that car, actually. I remember it. I'm sure a lot of people in our audience would, too. That's that's an iconic car. Right. There's certain certain venues that just physically it's tough to get it in or out or whatever. But but it's been at almost every event that we've had. And, and our intention is to continue to try to do that. Um, most of the time, uh, we've got a, a great vibe with two different pianos. Right. Um, John Lennon had a piano in his home uh, at Tittenhurst Park in Kenwood, two different houses that John Lennon owned. Uh, it, it was uh, made by John Broadwood and Sons 
and they went, they're out of business now, but they went back far enough. They used to make um, pianos for Mozart and the King of England, not the current King of England, way back <laughs> right. in like 18, 1870, right? It's this beautiful right. upright piano. And it, uh, it actually predated man's use of electricity. So there were candelabras on it. Now think about that. Sure. Uh, that's how far back it went. And, I, and, and so this, this particular piano um, is called the Sergeant Pepper's Piano because he composed many, many of the songs from that album on this piano. Oh, cool. Really super cool piece, right? Uh, requires a lot of special care. And um, yeah, uh, but the other one is one of my favorites. Uh, one of my favorite pieces. And I love all this stuff in the collection. It's really all of it's very fantastic and for varying reasons. But um, Elton John's piano is definitely one of my favorites. It's this grand piano that he played for 20 years uh, at 1100, a little over 1100 concerts. He lent it to Freddie Mercury for a year. So Queen toured with it for a year. Uh, it went from lacquer black to lacquer white. Paul McCartney played it at Live Aid. Um, wow. And 1.9 billion people yeah. watched that event on television and just a ton of superstars around Paul playing this piano. Um, all the famous concerts that, that, um, uh, that Elton played, including the two big ones at uh, Dodger Stadium, where we're the sequin outfit, right? Uh, uh, with the Dodger, uh, yeah. you know, uniform uh, mimicked on it. And it also was the last time that John Lennon performed on stage live in front of an audience was with Elton John and this piano. So think about all the different places it's been. It's sort of like the Forrest Gump of pianos. I'm sure it has a lot of stories to tell if it could, if it could talk. No question about it. It's, it's a fantastic piece. And um, uh, it's one that I know Mr. Ursay and I both love dearly. Uh, it, it's really very, very cool, I'll say. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got me. <laughs> there was one thing that you said that made, made me think if I, you said the piano is very important to you. Do you have an, maybe other than the piano or maybe the answer is the piano? What piece in the collection speaks to you personally? Oh, there's so many. Um, yeah. That Elton piano does for a number of different reasons, but I can harken back to freshman year of high school. And I gave my then girlfriend this album of Elton John's greatest hits and unbeknownst to me, she was giving me the same album. Oh, yeah, I know. I, know, I, I know. love that. <laughs> it's sort of romantic. I know. Right. You should try uh, a screenplay now. <laughs> well, I, I think so. Uh, she got a teddy bear and I got cologne anyway. Um, so there's, there's different memories. I think that, that associate with them. Uh, I love to hear again, love that piano, but, but seriously, there's so many that I do love shifting gears real quickly over to American history. When you walk into the room uh, that we display these artifacts in and from across the room, if you can recognize what it is right away and know what it is, that's really cool to me, too. Uh, a couple come to mind. Uh, Uncle Sam, James Montgomery Flagg, fashioned, you know, using his likeness and one of the veteran uh, uh, veterans from war, the Uncle Sam, I want you poster. And when you see we have a brilliant copy of that. Most people, I think, associate with World War Two. It's actually from World War One. Mm. Ours is from 1917. Mm. Wow. Um, it's a beautiful piece. It's brilliant. And that iconic image, you walk into, like I said, walk into the big room and you can see across the room, you immediately know what it is. Yeah. Um, another one that is just absolutely fantastic is um, we have a William Stone copy of the Declaration of Independence. So back in 1820, John Quincy Adams, the then Secretary of State, was recognizing, hey, and other people with Congress, right, were recognizing that, that the Declaration's fading. And if we don't do something, they didn't have photography, they didn't have a way to mimic it, right? We're going to just completely lose it all together. So we should commission an artist to make an exact replica. So William Stone is commissioned to do that. And it takes him three years to do it on a huge copper plate 
backwards. He takes this huge copper plate, presses it onto vellum, right? Like veal skin. 201 copies were made. 55 are, 55 are known to exist. Only 11 are in private hands. And, and there is one in the Jim Mercer collection. Wow. So that's certainly one of my favorites. And obviously we just recently had the 4th of July, the, the celebration of our country. Um, mm -hmm. I know we've got some issues and love to see us all do the peace and love thing like Ringo talks about. But at the end of the day, it's still a great, great country. And that, that Declaration of Independence, that speaks to me. That really does. Um, there are other things that are super significant. Um, one that, that to me transcends artifacts is the AA Big Book, the original yeah. working manuscript for Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the foundational piece for the 12-step program. And while it was, it was geared towards uh, alcoholism at that time, those same 12-step programs have been used for all sorts of other uh, addiction disorders. Um, it's something Mr. Ursay takes very, very seriously. Um, I, it happened to be, it also holds a special place in my heart for a number of reasons. Um, I certainly have some family members who've, who've been challenged with that and, and knock on wood are, are doing well now and in a good way. But um, it was the first artifact that I was Mr. Ursay's proxy at an auction. And so as we're on the phone and he's, and he's telling me to bid on this, on this item, when we finally were the victors and, and, and won the ability to, to have it. And remember, he calls himself a steward of the artifacts. He's a steward of the horseshoe, the Colts, and a steward of the artifacts. He knows we're all going to pass. And his is but a caretaker. I love he that. said, but Larry, look, it doesn't matter to me what it costs. If it helps save one person, it'll be worth every penny. That's and cool. so that that's pretty special, right? Yeah. That's pretty special. That that transcends artifacts. That's something that goes way beyond uh, other things and that not to diminish the other things. Sure. But that particular book, I've seen people you, you walk up to it and literally just start crying because it meant that much to them or it meant that much to a family member. Um, it just, it's, it's, it's a phenomena that, um, you know, one of the greatest things created by man probably in that century was this 12 step program. And the fact that that original working manuscript, that last document with all these handwritten edits and notes on it, um, is a part of the collection is something very, very special. It doesn't, um, uh, when, when it's not on tour, uh, it's at a, a, a local suburban North club is a recovery center here in the Northeast side on a, on a town called Noblesville, just outside of Indianapolis. It's there. And um, uh, you can check their website, the suburban North club to see when it might be available. You can't just show up anytime because they do have regular uh, meetings and such there, but we've got, uh, took very, very special care when the building is built to work with a, a number of uh, experts uh, to make sure that there was a special room created for it. Um, I work with a company out of Frankfurt, Germany, to get some um, high-end cases made for some of the guitars on display uh, when they're when they're here in Indy, and the case that was made for the A Big Book. So those things lead themselves to, you know, certainly um, things that are that are life-altering, and 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 you know, the music and the American history and the pop culture all matter, and and they're very much a part of our lives. But you're, we're you're talking about saving people's lives. It's a very very special piece, and. From that uh, emanated um, a number of different things. One uh, called Kicking the Stigma. And that's the initiative uh, that the Ursay family, uh, Mr. Ursay and with Kayla and Ursay Jackson and, and, and the other daughters, um, have created to create mental health awareness and care. And basically, sum it up, it's, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. To get away from the stigma of, of mental health challenges, to make sure people have resources and help. And it's um, a become a nationwide campaign. I really think they're thinking about taking it international. So um, those are some things that are just um, here again, I, I, would, I would say transcend artifacts. That, that transcends cool. 
<laughs> very well said. Well said. Absolutely. Um, and everybody has somebody in their family and maybe themselves, right? Who's had some challenges. And I, I love Mr. C for a lot of reasons. Uh, his philanthropy people know about uh, a lot of times, but there's a lot of things that he does for folks that no one ever sees you know, or hears about, you know? And so, like and yeah, it's just, he's a really good hearted person. And, and uh, I love the fact that I, I had the privilege of working with him and, and uh, you know, it's a huge responsibility for me. To, to, to look after the collection. And, and luckily for me, I've got a great team of people and others that I can lean into to uh, do our absolute best to, to take care of it. But, um, you know, some really, really cool things that uh, people can see in Boston this coming weekend. Um, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a, a sneak peek. I mean, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Um, uh, early September, September 8th, we're targeting Indianapolis again, Lucas Oil Stadium, which is our big football stadium the Colts playing, playing to, um, to have another event. So I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag. Forgive me whoever's going to get mad about me doing that. <laughs> um, uh, our communications guy or other people, uh, it's, a, it's a sneak peek for, for you all to, uh, to plan. If you can't make it to Boston, July 15th, then you September do. the 8th, uh, Indianapolis. Come see us. It's, it's a wonderful time. Mr. Say has a great time with the band. Um, uh, it, a lot of special um, uh, people in that band. Kenny Aronoff, Mike Mills, Mike Wanchik. I go on Mike Ramos, uh, Kenny Wayne Shepard I mentioned earlier. So, so many. Uh, and then special guests that have played with us this coming weekend in Boston. Uh, we're going to have Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles Band, uh, Kevin Cronin from Mario Speedwagon, uh, and then Vince Gill, 22-time Grammy winner. Nice. So those are some of the special guests that are coming in addition to the regular band. Uh, Carmela is a wonderful, she's a wonderful violinist and uh, fiddler that uh, supplements too. Just to, I'm probably forgetting someone, so forgive me. Uh, Tom Bukovac, I mean, it could go on and on and on. Uh, the, Billy Branch plays harmonica and other things. Um, there's just a ton of people that play with them on a regular basis. And then special guest. It's amazing. People, people, I've heard Jim Mercy say this before. He'll be like, when people hear about, it, they go, what's the catch? You know, it's like, do you have to watch a two hour video about buying a condo? I mean, why can I get to do all this cool stuff <laughs> it's without having to pay anything? Right. It's like, why, how is this, you know, how's this happening? But I go back to here again. Mr. Say's philanthropy. I mean, he's a great guy. And he, he, again, the inspiration from the artifacts, the artist in those moments in time that he loves to share with people. Well, I mean, and like, it, oh, sorry. No, um, it, 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 yeah. it definitely comes across like that because you've talked so positively even before the podcast started about all of the work that Mr. Irsay does, um, all of the philanthropy work that you've mentioned uh, up to now with Kicking the Stigma, um, and for the fact that this entire show is completely free, the concert is free, the show is free, um, all the work that he's doing, it's really not just preserving art or history, it's really making a connection with people in general and inviting a conversation for people to be and come together and that's one of the things that i love about this thank you so much yeah it really it warms my heart when i think about it and, and there's times when you've got that whole pinch me moment where you're sort of like am i really doing this it's just uh it's amazing at times it's in it, here again i don't take it for granted i never do it's a privilege to to be involved with it um i love to see the joy on people's faces and that's another way i've described it when someone says well you know can you elaborate even more on, on why Jim Mercy does this? And I think to myself, well, you know, this is me kind of extrapolating out, but I think almost it's like we get joy. All of us get joy by giving other people joy. And I think he's, he's just like everyone else. Right. And he's just able to do it on a scale beyond what most people can. Right. Because of his resources, his passion, um, his desire to collect these things and then share them. Right. It's, it's not about 
uh, having them even be in one place. He's talked about possibly a brick and mortar museum someday. Nothing's eminent right now. I love, I know this, he loves taking it on the road and for the foreseeable future, that's what I see us doing. So I really appreciate the kind words and, you know, we're, uh, always telling people, Hey, look, if you get a chance, you should really come see it because it's one thing, you know, certainly you can go to our website and look at different videos that have been made and photos and they're great. Believe me, they really are. There's nothing like seeing, you know, that Beatles drum head from the Sullivan show in person and knowing what that meant to millions, tens of millions of people. I can almost hear the teenage girls screaming in the back of my ear when I watched the <laughs> video, right? I was a very, very young boy. So I candidly, I don't remember it. But I remember seeing the video so many times and they just like were so giddy and screamed. And um, uh, it was quite the phenomenon to have them come to America. Well, and some of those items are like goosebump worthy, you know, like that is a connection to something in history that brings a feeling to people that normal everyday items don't necessarily bring. The idea that you're in the presence of something that you only heard of in books or on TV or through a you know, whatever that is the fact that you get to have that and all of it in one place is to reach people that way is amazing. Um, no question. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a lot of fun for us. And, um, you know, my wife loves the American history part. Uh, there, we have a letter from George Washington that he wrote to Thomas Jefferson the day after the constitution was ratified. Wow. And so say, I mean, when you say that out loud, it's sort of like, wait a second, it's two Mount Rushmore guys. Like there's a thing in sports where you say, well, who's your Mount Rushmore of quarterbacks? Oh, who's yeah. your Mount Rushmore? No, no, no. These two guys are on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> One right. president <laughs> writing to the other. Wow. And it's hugely significant. It's a really cool piece. Um, I, I think that that in particular, uh, you know, I know he hand wrote the whole thing. Many letters from presidents years ago were written by aides and then signed by the president. Sure. And we, we have several uh, Abraham Lincoln letters um, that were maybe written by an A, but we also have several that he wrote himself. And to show you a little bit about the, the width and the breadth of the collection when it comes to, say, Lincoln letters, um, there's one in particular that is something that's you know, not super important, but he wrote a letter of recommendation for two young ladies to get a job with a U.S. postmaster. Okay, well, not, not hugely significant, but to show the, the depth and the breadth of the thing, uh, the collection itself and, and those Lincoln letters, there's also one that talks about a prisoner exchange because during the Civil War, uh, evidently there was a battle where the northern soldiers were being overrun by the south. And they had used a farmhouse as a triage place for wounded soldiers and a surgeon that was very you know, important to, to, to the northern army you know, was told, retreat, retreat. He said, no, I'm going to stay with the men. And he did and he got captured. And so Lincoln made a big deal out of trying to get a prisoner exchange going. Unfortunately, it never worked. The man was kept in a prison uh, uh the military prison for some time and towards the end of the war is able to, to finally either be released or escape and make his way back. But that letter is usually significant. And then there's another letter, a separate letter from that one has nothing to do with that piece. That is a presidential pardon, a stay of execution. Okay. So you've got a letter of recommendation, stay of execution, a, a request for a prisoner exchange, uh, several thank you letters for um, presentation canes were a very popular thing to give back then. Uh, we also have this incredible pocket knife that was a gift to Abraham Lincoln by the Sanitary Commission uh, in Philadelphia. Sanitary Commission looked after northern soldiers. And so to recognize all the efforts that, that Lincoln had put into the, to this, uh, they gifted him this pearl pocket knife and two different blades. One has liberty, one has equality on it. And a man named A.B. Justice, 
was the one that crafted it. It came in a wooden box. It's about this big. It came in a wooden box. That The wood from that box used to hold up the Liberty Bell. Oh. So think about that, right? I mean, it's a really cool piece. And and we didn't inquire it straight away from, from it's handed down over the years. Um, but someone was able to pull back together the thank you letter that Lincoln wrote for the knife. So we display those three pieces together, the yeah. knife, the box, and the thank you letter. Um, Mr. Say loves Lincoln uh, and, and, you know, of several of the presidents, obviously. But in the end, um, I just wanted to give a little bit of an example of, of, of both the, the, the depth and the, and, and the breadth of the collection. Yeah. When, when you're moving these artifacts around, does it, I mean, there's such a variety with guitars and small items like pocket knives and larger items. How do you possibly move these things without getting destroyed? Well, um, we do our best. And uh, without giving away all the trade secrets, there are we've had some special cases made. They're super heavy, but soft inside. And we have some what we call frame trunks that um, we slot the letters into. And, and each of the each of the letters has their own unique slot with huge appropriate padding around it. And we know where each one of those go and all of it gets carefully uh, packaged to make the trips. Um, you know, obviously the pianos, we lean into piano movers. Um, we, we work with uh, Steinway and company to get recommendations in each city and who the best of the best are. And then, and then they hear my, you know, I'll say speech about artifact first, piano second. Yeah. Right. Um, the truth be known. Uh, I think, there's so many priceless things and priceless is a cliche, but priceless is true in this case. So for example, if the Beatles drums, if you put a value on them and said, Oh, $5.6 million is what they're worth today. Well, whether it's 5.6 or 56 million, if heaven forbid an earthquake comes and takes them away, doesn't matter all the money in the world. You can't buy another Beatles drum head from the right. There's only that one. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a number of things like that, that are, that are, that are the AA big book, obviously that's the one of one. Uh, there, it's right. literally a priceless artifact. So we do our absolute best. Um, we're always uh, self-evaluating, self-scouting, so to speak, is kind of a thing from from uh, football. Uh, we work with a lot of different experts in, in different um, fields to make sure that we're doing our absolute best. Obviously, I'm not going to deny there is some risk taking on the road. Mr. Ursa understands that. Yeah. But um, he feels like that risk is worth the reward of seeing the joy and inspiration that it gives to other people. I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, I would agree. And if I can be an advocate to keep it going on the road, um, for me, coming from also from the theater world and from that sort of thing, there's a lot of things that are kind of landlocked and people will not have that same experience because they're not able to get to certain places. So if I can advocate for that, I would love to see it continuing going on the road. Same. Thank you, Trey. I, I, I love the fact that you brought that up. It's fantastic. And Going back to your earlier point about being a performer, a singer, um, Jim Morrison of The Doors, right? Back to rock and roll, right? Love that. Um, his, his instrument was his voice. We happen to have a gold microphone that he used every show except one. It's Chronicle that he used this every show except one the last two years of his life. And it's a beautiful gold microphone. And that was the conduit by which his instrument, his voice, yeah. was given to the world. So there's a lot of really cool things that... Um, uh, people can come to see, and uh, I definitely encourage people to do that when it's near them or if they have to travel to do it. 
Uh, one thing that I'm curious about, because you've mentioned that you've acquired some pieces through either auction houses or from donations and those sorts of things. Um, if a piece were to be donated to you, what does that process look like of validating it, of getting the historical pieces done, of making sure that it's properly uh, kind of contained um, for what secrets that are not uh, restricted in your non-disclosure agreement, of course? Sure, sure. And um, that's what makes it sound very formal. It, 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 it is a process. But um, really, when it comes to there's really two main ways, just, just if I may go back um, through auctions or private acquisitions. But we really haven't had things donated so much, except maybe some close friends in the music industry to Mr. Ursay have given them some guitars, that sort of thing. But for the most part, um, it's auctions and private acquisitions. Um, to us, provenance is everything. If it's a private acquisition, um, I'll admit my guard goes way up. It's like, why, you know, why isn't it going to auction? Is it really to our advantage? And sometimes it is to be able to acquire something privately without it going. And sometimes it may be the family doesn't necessarily want to put it out there. Um, I don't think it's a problem for me to say this, that um, we have a hat that was going to be gifted to John F. Kennedy, uh, unfortunately, the day he was assassinated. And that came straight from the Conley family. Uh, John Conley, the governor of Texas, was in the car at the time and obviously was hit by a few bullets as well. And um, it was supposed to be given to, to the president later that night. Well, they held on to it and we were able to, to acquire that in a private acquisition. Wow. And that was really because they didn't want to make a lot of fanfare about it, but knew it had historical significance and wanted it to be presented to people and in, in, in just as, as what it is, which is this part of history, American history. Um, you know, going back to the different ways, it, it's fascinating to me how there are relatively small auction houses that we've dealt with. Um, we acquired a Susan B. Anthony uh, photo that was one of those things, it sounds like someone made up, but found in an attic in the, in the Northeast and was all verified that it is her, taken just a few months before she passed. And that was a very small auction house in upstate New York. We acquired that piece and it was one of the bigger pieces in their auction. And the wonderful family uh, drove down from, from upstate New York uh, on their family vacation to deliver it to me. At Indianapolis, which I thought was fantastic, right? So, yeah. sort of a, that's kind of a behind-the-scenes auction piece that this family valued it so much and didn't want to take a chance on shippers. And there's a lot of high-end U.S. Uh, uh, you know art shippers in the U.S. Um, but uh, that is, is is sort of a behind-the-scenes piece to things very very public. One of the biggest, uh, I guess, attractions in terms of of, of an auction event. The Black Stratocaster was the last, the final, the 127th artifact from David Gilmore. And it was Christie's Auction House in New York. And they did a very nice job of promoting it. They took all the artifacts to London, England for a week or two for people to see the artifacts. And then they took them to Los Angeles to see for a week or two. And they finally bring them to New York. And there's all this buildup. And I went with Mark Johnson, one of our uh, guitar specialists, historians, sound men, Mr. Everything, really, when it comes to, to, to music. Uh, and we scouted and we made a report back from Mr. Ursay. We said, here are the things that we you know, think should be considered. And um, he came back and said, hey, let's go after the Wish You Were Here acoustic, which I'll admit sometimes gets overshadowed by the Black Stratocaster. But the Wish You Were Here acoustic, when they asked David Gilmore, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what would be your one luxury item if you were allowed one? And he said that acoustic guitar because all my songs poured out of it. Oh. So that's a hugely significant piece. Um, talk about mental health, you know, Wish You Were Here. Uh, one of their bandmates, unfortunately, had some real mental challenges. And um, the, the, the song itself starts off with almost like an AM car radio playing. And then a 12-string guitar comes in. And then this iconic six-string guitar 
those iconic riffs. And, and it's, it's really fascinating to me, you know, the lines, did you trade your walk on part in the, in a war for a lead role in a cage? And it talks about that, that cage being that addiction piece. Right. So um, there's a lot of cool things that have come from here. Emily, go back to cool. Um, it, it, cool things that have come out of my involvement and, and my understanding and continued understanding and appreciation for the collection. Uh, but things as simple as, as those folks that love Pink Floyd, not just in the U S but around the world, back to Christie's in New York in 2019, June, when, when, when it came down uh, and, and, you know, I'm on the phone with Mr. Ursay and he's giving me instructions on when to bid and, and, and it starts off, you know, uh, at maybe 600,000 goes back and forth, gets up to a $1 million and the room's packed. There's it's completely packed 500 people or more. They have a second room. There are people bidding online There are people bidding via phone. Um, it, it, there's cell phones everywhere going, uh, capturing everything. Uh, we end up on odd numbers. They're uneven. So we're 1.1, they're 1.2. And it goes back and forth in this British lady who's uh, Gemma Sudlow uh, from Christie's is, is at, uh, at the dais and, you know, she's going back and forth in a very formal kind of almost like a Harry Potter wizardry kind of a way. Um, and and I mean, it's very surreal as it's all going on. Remember, this is at the end of a nine hour day. I've been there for nine hours and um, I got there early. And, and uh, finally, uh, we're 2.9. She goes three million dollars and the crowds. Ooh, right. All this great build up to it. You know, what do you want to do? Mr. Saying he comes back. We go three, one, three, two, three, three. We're at three, three. And it slows down. And I get this good feeling that, Hey, I think we're there. Right. So I said, listen, brother, I think, I think we're good. Right. And, and there's a long protracted delay and she's trying to buy time for the other bidder. So this is a very public and, you know, significant piece that's out in front of everybody. Um, and, and finally she looks down at me from, uh, from on high and says, going once, going back over to him, going twice for $3.3 million here, Christie's, this is your moment. And she says, and I jump in the air for joy it's a wonderful experience that I'll never forget. Um, pump my fist and just really, really, uh, it's surreal to even talk about it. Um, there's video, so I know it happened. It wasn't just my imagination. <laughs> but in the end, uh, Mr. Ursay was elated. Uh, of course, after taxes and fees, it creeps up $3.9, $4.1 million. Uh, at that time, was the most, uh, the most expensive guitar in the world. You know, but it's really... The money matters. Don't get me wrong. It definitely does. But but, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, these are really priceless artifacts. I mean, uh, David Gilmore spent a lot of time modifying that guitar. You know, he got it from Manny's in 1969 and, and modified it over time to get that exact special sound the way to make it sound just the way it is. But I wanted to give a couple examples of how, you know, if it's if it's a, a small auction house in upstate New York, doesn't matter. We can still find things that that resonate with the collection like mm -hmm. that Susan B. Anthony letter. We have others. Uh, sorry, Susan B. Anthony photo. We also have letters from Susan B. Anthony. Uh, we, we, we make a, a real intention to try to, to, to make sure there's diversity in the collection. Um, uh, we talked about rock and roll, uh, I believe, before the show started, about the John Coltrane uh, saxophone from 1966 uh, that he played uh, summer uh, uh, in Japan. And then we have a Miles Davis trumpet. Um, we have James Brown's uh, cape, this oh, red wow. sequin cape. Yeah. And I love, I love James Brown, right? I love James Brown, and he... He would sort of feign exhaustion near the end of the show, and his cape man would come out and put the cape on, right? <laughs> yeah. And then he would, he would throw it off and go for another song, right? Um, so we've got a real, just a ton of really, really cool things that uh, uh, I obviously love to talk about, but um, they're better to come see. Yeah. So everyone should 
should try to do that. Try to come see us at at at, uh, at one of the stops we make. But um, you know, just to, to segue over to real quick uh, to private acquisitions. Going back to that real quick, you know, that's something that we've got to make sure it's one hundred percent accurate. The best situation for me is when it comes straight from the artist or straight from the athlete or straight from the performer, right? Sure. So um, just last year, Ron Turcott was the jockey that rode secretariat to the Triple Crown. And Mr. Turcott's uh, representatives reached out to me. I in turn to Mr. Ursay. We were a part of a private bidding process that we end up being the, the, the winning bidder. And uh, in order to get the saddle, uh, I brought a specialist, an appraiser with me, one of Mr. Turcott's representatives. We all uh, went to Newark. Uh, then flew to Presque Isle, Maine, which is the northern Maine regional airport. I've never been to Maine prior, only once prior in the southern part for vacation in the summer. And it's the dead of winter. And we stay in Presque Isle. And the next day, we rented a car. And I'm driving this road that looks like it's going off into the sky, right? There's 150-foot pine trees. It's snowing. The road's covered. And it's one of those pinch-yourself moments. You're like, are we really doing that? So we're going to go meet this this iconic, famous jockey, uh, Ron Turcott, that unfortunately, after winning the Triple Crown in 1973, five years later in 1978, was paralyzed from a horse racing accident. Oh. But he's a, it's a Canadian country gentleman. Um, he had the, the saddle. We met him in Van Buren, which is way at the northern part of the, uh, of the state. And um, uh, it was a wonderful exchange. I got to, 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 to meet with him, obviously, and see the saddle and have our expert look at it. And when you get a letter from the person who wrote it saying, this is the saddle and you can do photo matching, right? Now you feel good about it. Now like you go back to Mr. Say, yeah, this is legit. It's, and that's what an iconic piece that is, right? Because um, I believe Muhammad Ali and Secretary are the only two entities that appeared on the cover of Time, Newsweek and Sports Illustrated in the same week, mm. right? So di- different weeks, but that, that, that after winning the Triple Crown, Secretary was on all three and Muhammad Ali was on all three another period of time. Um, so those those are really special uh, memories for me from a behind the scenes sort of how we do things. But um, it's best when it comes straight away from the artist or sure. uh, the, the jockey in this case. And he actually famously rode uh, Riva Ridge the year before 1972 to win uh, the Kentucky Derby in the Belmont. Um, and as I understand it, mostly from watching the movie uh, is you know, it kind of helped save uh, Meadow Stables mm-hmm. so that Secretary wow. could then run in 1973, win the Triple Crown, um, still holds the, the, the record for those races uh, for all three. And the last one, the Belmont Stakes, and we just took the saddle up there uh, when that happened this year because it was the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Secretary won by 31 lengths. And, and for those that don't know horse racing, a length is eight feet. So multiply eight feet times 31. There's this famous picture of Ron Turcotte looking over his shoulder, like, where is everybody, right? He's so far out in front. It's fantastic. Um, I think really Secretariat captured the hearts and minds of Americans. I was 13 at the time. I remember that, right? I remember people, we were all rooting for the same horse. I didn't know why necessarily, other than it was this, you know, cop captured the hearts and minds of everyone and um, had this iconic nature. Uh, Big Red was its nickname. Um, And as I understand it, uh, after uh, Secretariat passed, they did look at uh, the anatomy of, of the horse and that it was uh, like twice the size of an average horse of that same size. So it had figuratively had a big heart and literally had a big heart. And that's obviously mm-hmm. translated into why it was such a strong, uh, strong competitor. I think having a private sale from a, from the artist or the person themselves like that also 
carries more meaning in that they clearly want the Jim Airside collection and believe in that enough to want to sell directly to it or to have it donated or whatever directly to it so that it's part of this awesomeness. See, I didn't use the word cool. Part of this. Well done. <laughs> part of this awesomeness that the Jim Irsay collection is. And I think that speaks to that as well, or at least from my perspective, it, it would. We talked about it. Ron Turcott and I talked about it and he, he said, yeah, I love what Mr. Irsay's doing with the collection. Uh, the fact that people are going to get to see it that uh, to Trey's point earlier travels around. He's, you know, advocating for that. Um, I certainly get heartburn uh, when we, when we go on the road, but uh, I understand the why part of it. And I, I, I love the fact that we're doing it. Um, I, I know there's some inherent risks to that and we all accept that. Uh, but, but in the end, I think you're right, Emily, to have it come straight away from the artist and, and have him talk about that specifically, that, that, that sharing and, and, and the way it's presented uh, matters, you know, very much to the people who um, were the artists or athletes that, we're associated with these things. Yeah. You've mentioned that Mr. Yersay um, really likes Abraham Lincoln. Um, he clearly enjoys preserving history and music and art and kind of the, the juxtaposition of all three of those together. Um, are there any pieces or are, is there anything from a particular person that Mr. Yersay is looking for to include in his collection? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny because while I could say anything, I'll say it in a general sense because I don't want to give away too much and then have the whole market sure. changes on price or something. Oh, yeah. Because right. of something I said <laughs> in a podcast. I was like, why did he say that? Just change um, the whole stock market. Let's put it this way. Mr. Ursay Mr. has his eye on anything that's iconic. And certainly if it falls within American history, pop culture, rock and roll that's not to say we won't look outside of it and i think you know I, I part of me hates to put things in silos but i i think it helps frame for people some idea of the iconic nature of it and how diverse it can be um you know i, I there for a long time I, i'll share that he, he he really loved you know cast away the movie and wanted to get a wilson volleyball and and before i was involved in the collection he had bid on one and lost out and then afterwards he thought oh, i wish i would have gone up i think it's as I recall, as the story goes. So uh, we were fortunate to get one here just in the last year or so hmm. that um, I think that was the one that he kind of in the back of his mind, you know, uh, really wanted to add to the collection. And, and so it was good to, to have it be a part of it. Um, you know, we've, we've got a number of different things that I think if he thought about it in advance, he would say, well, of course the acoustic guitar that El that El that Eric Clapton played on MTV unplugged, would be incredible because that's that's again that's one of those triumvirates right where it's this mm -hmm. you know one of the greatest guitar players ever if not the greatest right eric clapton with this iconic acoustic guitar and then that moment in time mtv unplugged where i believe he won six grammys in in, in rock and roll song of the year uh layla mm -hmm. so very very special piece um i really think it's just about uh you know the team that that has been created to kind of look out for things on an auction basis and now because of the public nature of the collection, um, I get a lot of emails uh, of people who have things. And um, I, I, I'm always uh, cognizant of the fact that it probably has more value to the recipient that currently has it than it may to someone else. So I'm always mm -hmm. polite about it. And, and candidly, a lot of these things are very, very valuable. 
they just necessarily don't fit our collection. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we don't really do a lot with photography. Uh, we do have some original NASA, NASA photos of the first time an American uh, walked in space. Oh. And it's an official photo, from, but that's really the only one beyond Susan B. Anthony. There may be a couple of others. We've got one that we display. Um, Harry S. Truman's uh, hat he wore on Inauguration Day. We've got a photo of him next to it. But we don't go looking for photography necessarily. So those are things I, I get. A lot of people say, I have an amp I want to sell. We have a few amps. We have the Budman amp. That's a great partner with Tiger, Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia. But um, uh, for some reason, people always want to sell us an amp or have us acquire an amp. And it's just, <laughs> it's really, I guess because we have all these guitars, they think, well, they must need a lot of amps. And it turns out we, we really don't. But um, Doesn't so have the, it's, same, the same impact as a guitar does. No, it's, it, it truly doesn't. And yet it's, there's certainly a huge part of the performance, right? But um, uh, I think that that instrument speaks for itself, you know, held in, in uh, a virtuoso's hand or that microphone, right, for the singer we talked about with Jim Morrison uh, and Trey being a singer, right? I was going to say, Trey, when you're done with that microphone, you mm -hmm. ought to consider donating it. <laughs> we have a limited amount of things we can take on the road so maybe, maybe, no offense to trey but uh, uh, none, none taken good good it's um, probably been lightly used it hasn't been used for decades or 1100 um, shows yet right not yet no 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 not at all two million just saying okay uh, okay uh, we we'll, talk we'll talk offline we'll talk offline uh, well, we've asked about Mr. Ursay. Uh, and what about you? Is there any person that you're looking for to include in the collection? I, I would say it's it's a matter of, of you know, respecting always uh, the man's name who's on the collection, Jim Ursay. His preference is always going to trump everything, rightly so. Sure. Uh, but I, I, I'm fortunate a lot of my preferences are in line with his. Um, I, I'm, I'm constantly thinking in terms of, is there something we don't have that fits sort of, um, if, 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 if music were a tree and we have these branches coming off, right? Is there a branch that we don't have represented that may fit his style at least well enough to acquire? Um, uh, we recently got um, uh, Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day, a guitar that, you know, Billy Joe's not exactly that same era with Beatles and Dylan, that sort of thing. Yeah. But they're Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and, and certainly Mr. Say respects what they've accomplished. So that was one that we recently uh, added. And I think to answer Trey's question, um, I'm looking, you know, for things that fit Mr. Ursay's preferences, but also things that may not be in the collection that, at least in my mind, would merit consideration. Sure. Uh, and, and so to that end, you know, at this point, there's over 200 guitars in, in the collection. Uh, we travel with 30. And um, it's, it's wonderful to have uh, not debate, but certainly discussion about, OK, who's going to get bumped off the wall now that we have this Jimi Hendrix yeah. guitar that um, he, he uh, 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 had gifted to his friend uh, Billy Davis, who's also a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And evidently, I'm told that Billy Davis used to play with his teeth and behind his back before Hendrix did. So obviously, one would extrapolate out of that. That's kind of where Hendrix got the idea to do it. So that's a pretty cool piece, right? You know, that Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Okay, now you start looking at the wall. Are you going to take off the black strat? No. Uh, Kurt Cobain's "Smells Like Teen Spirit" Blue Mustang that really kind of changed the way people thought about how they ate, dressed, listened to music, uh, their way of life. You're not. It's not going to bump that. So 
it's that's a fun thing for us to have. You know, it's a great kind of quote problem, if you will. It's really not a problem. Uh, we do like to rotate things through. And I, I obviously lean very heavily into Mark and Eric Johnson when it comes to the guitars. But um, it's just a lot of fun for us to, 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 to work through the process and try to keep it fresh. Obviously, we have some people that have been to multiple locations and we want to make sure that they're seeing something new each time. Sure. Speaking of that, you have a list of things. Uh, I do. I do. Uh, things going to Boston. We talked about this right. a little bit. So you want to you want to you want to take it, take that, uh, take that ride and I we'll do. just do some randomness. So- Maybe let the audience pick a, a number. Yeah. If we're going to do it, let me let me go oh. ahead. And uh, uh-huh. we've been sitting for a while, so we'll. The jacket's coming off. Okay. <laughs> yes. You guys to know. Great. Okay. Okay. We're going to have to probably get out uh, my 63-year-old eyes. We'll need this for the very small font <laughs> that is the list in front of me. Um, so the idea is uh, someone calls out a number. Let's start with American history. Uh, pick a number between 1 and 45. 1 to 45. It may be something we've already touched on, but let's give it a go. Uh, um, if anybody out there has a number. Yeah. Go we'll go ask first, our... Trey. Uh, we'll ask our listening audience, uh, Emily and I will pick one, uh, but please drop your numbers in the chat and we will pick one from the audience and call that number out. Uh, again, that is one through 45. I'm going to go uh, for the answer to everything, which is 42. 42. Okay. That, uh, the Dharma bombs, uh, Hunter S. Thompson's personal copy, right? So tying, tying together, um, the intricacies of that, I, I don't think I could do a great job of. Uh, uh, my associate Jake Chef is much, much better at this piece than I. But um, I think gonzo journalism was coined because of Hunter S. Thompson. And Mr. S.A. loved Hunter S. Thompson. Um, there's a, a, a somewhat funny, famous story. Hunter S. Thompson recommended that Ryan Leaf be taken over Peyton Manning. And if you don't know who Peyton Manning is, you're not a football fan. He's the only person has a statue in front of our football stadium. So he ended up being... Arguably, if not our best, uh, uh, certainly one of the best of all time. And my, for my money, he is the best cult ever. But um, this particular book uh, was a personal copy of Hunter S. Thompson. So that's a really cool piece in the fine books and manuscript space that we have of American history. How about another number? Uh, Sandra said 39. 39 for Sandra. That one is a, the George Washington letter that Alexander Hamilton was actually um, an aide to the president. And he wrote that letter and constructed it and, and uh, the president signed it. So that's one that we've had for some time and it gets from 1780. Uh, and you think about that, that's, that's pretty cool, right? Um, because I, I want to go there. The, the oldest artifact we have is from 1765. Wow. Faneuil Hall in Boston, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately burned down in order to get it rebuilt. Um, they held an auction and John Hancock signed this lottery ticket, number 3737. I remember the number because I was a ticket guy and you retain those things. Sure. Um, and and, and uh, the cool thing to be able to say is, you know, we have all these iconic artifacts and rattle off five or 10 things and then go, we even have John Hancock's John Hancock. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's there you amazing. go. Okay. So. Do we want to move on to music, non-guitars? Um, we did have right? one other number. For oh, sorry. Go ahead. Fire away. And that was uh, Lee said 19. Number 19. Oh, there's a JFK cigar box with a, um, a 1901 half dollar coin. So evidently, you know, the, the, it's just wooden, guitar bo- wooden cigar box with President Kennedy inscribed on the front of it. 
And there was a 50 cent piece in it from 1901. And I believe as the story goes, he literally would flip a coin sometimes if he really couldn't make a decision. I don't know if that's true or wives tale, that part I'd have to validate, but um, that's still a pretty cool piece. It gets displayed with other JFK artifacts like that hat I described earlier. Um, it's a, it's a Stetson hat. It's really cool. And this, Brown, uh, brown leather case with a red inter red felt interior uh, and then a very traditional looking hat. Um, and that display is typically next to the JFK rocking chair that I talked oh, about earlier yeah. with Lawrence Arata. So some really cool JFK stuff. Um, you want to move into another group? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. So this is not, this is music, but not, not guitars. They have their own section. A number from one to 22. Emily, you go. Uh, three. Number three. Okay, that's the Jim Morrison microphone that we talked about. Pick another number, please. Uh, uh, 13. 13. This is Sir Elton John's grand piano. You guys are hitting all the markers. Okay. <laughs> I'll do I'll do I'll do one near. Let's let's go with um uh or Sanderson. Oh, Courtney. how about how about how about this one? This is a very unusual piece. Paul McCartney. Um, and, and this is sort of somewhat sad too, but it's, it's part of history, right? Um, sort of the breakup, the Beatles, if you will, there was an affidavit that, um, Paul McCartney's, uh, attorney sent to the other Beatles and the copy in the Jamersey collection belonged to John Lennon. How do we know that? Well, um, the, so this document about 12 pages on what amounts to, um, the English legal size paper, right? Uh, it talks about the reasons that, that the band should break up. So I think now there's things called no fault divorce or no fault dissolving of a business. Back then someone had to be at fault. And as I recall, one of the things that McCartney's attorneys, I think said was um, that uh, John refuses to perform live any song he didn't write. Well, this upset John Lennon. So he grabs a pen and he writes in the margin. So this, this document has these handwritten annotations from John Lennon and basically says, Paul's been guilty of this for years. So unfortunately, Obviously, they, the the band didn't necessarily get along at the end, and it's it's a sad part of the of the tale. But it's also a significant part of history, and, and those things I think um, uh, make the collection even more unique. Uh, I'm, I have not heard of another one. There may be other ones out there, um, but we got that at Christie's Auction House in New York, and, and has great provenance back to yeah. um, you know right to John. So a cool piece. Uh, all right, let's do another one. Uh, how about in guitars, one to thirty. Sandra We've talked a lot said, about guitars. Sandra yep. last said 22. Oh, 22. And is that is that for the guitars? I don't know, but we can just go with it. <laughs> okay, let's go with guitars. 22. Okay. So there's a 1960 Vox Kensington that belonged to John Lennon. Vox is really known for amps, but they, this is a one-of-one one specially made for John Lennon. I think we're up to its total of six guitars related back to the Beatles, one of which is a Paul McCartney... Um, bass that he used in wings when he when he when he formed that group which is also phenomenal and fantastic um how about another number four guitars uh, i'm going to go back to no lucky number 13. lucky number 13. oh here we go so that's the uh 1977 gibson les paul pro deluxe guitar neil shown journey don't stop believing who doesn't know that song right everyone right it's a wonderful piece um i had a little epiphany while watching a couple of different series that um, uh, were very, very popular over the last 10 or so years, however long it's been, 
the Sopranos at the very, very end of the, that's really not spoiler alert, I don't think, material, but the very, very end, the very last scene, the very last song playing is Don't Stop Believing, right? Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. Now that that guitar that belonged to Neil Schoen is in the collection. And then uh, I watched Breaking Bad uh, and that those that know who Walter Wright, the main character is, yeah. the very last scene, the very last episode, they're playing a, a song called Baby Blue. A little bit more obscure, but Baby Blue by a group called Badfinger. Badfinger um, was uh, a number of different people, but um, Peter Ham was was gifted the guitar from George Harrison. It's one of Mark Johnson's favorite, if not his favorite, in the collection. Um, it, John, uh, George Harrison played Paperback Rider, Hey Bulldog, a number of other Beatles songs on the guitar, gifted it to Pete Ham at Badfinger. They play a number of songs, including Baby Blue, to show the ripple effect, the ripple effect of the artifacts. That song was the last song, the last scene in this series, uh, Breaking Bad. So it's really cool to me to think of how some of these things are, you know, hundreds of years old, the oldest being that 1765 lottery ticket I talked about. Um, But even something as simple as as the journey, Don't Stop Believing song, how it resonates not just um, with people that are, you know, coming back from maybe some cancer or they are, there's a team that's behind in, in a game and they play the song or they're having a series that they can maybe come back and make a season of it. Um, it's interesting that that those things are still resonating and, and how they connect back to what Mr. Say is doing with the collection and, and, and these artifacts. For sure. Yeah. Do we have another Terrific. category? Oh, sure. Let's see what we've got. Um, well, pop culture is, is a little bit smaller. Uh, let's go 1 to 11. I want number 1. Number 1. Sylvester Stallone's handwritten script to Rocky. This 28-page Mead notebook uh, after after seeing um, uh, a, a boxing match with Muhammad Ali, uh, he thought, oh, wouldn't it be incredible if some just unknown from nowhere could defeat the greatest of them all? And he wrote this script, as I understand it, when, um, you know, he wasn't doing quite as well as he does today, perhaps <laughs> financially. Uh, but what an iconic movie that is. And I, I can't hear uh, uh, Rocky and not think, you know, of here again, how music ties to an eye of the tiger, right? Yeah. And the build up to it and him mm-hmm. running up the steps famously. And people did that for years in Philadelphia until they moved the statue, as I understand it. But um, they, and they, they still do the stairs. But um, that script is, is pretty cool uh, and, 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 you know, goes back to a time where um, an underdog was created in a very American way, I think. Yeah. What about you guys? What do you, what do you think of that? Absolutely. 100%. And there was even a story where some guys like ran up those stairs and then Sylvester Stallone was waiting at the top or something like that. I've heard that, that before. Was a few sure. Years ago. Yeah. Sure. And I and I thought that is how iconic that movie is. First, no Absolutely. one thinks of Eye of the Tiger. Well, I can't say no one, but most people probably think Eye of the Tiger. They immediately think that. And then, Absolutely. And then, you know, even now, a couple of college guys can run up those stairs and have this moment that that is just i'm gonna say it again it's so cool so cool it's not you get a pass on cool cool is a great word to use um i do think not everybody would think it would cool to drink was it five six how many raw eggs did he pour into the cup and then just drank it no yeah that was that was a moment (laughs) it was a moment that's for sure it was a moment that's one thing i don't forget about that movie either (laughs) right 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 that's good 
It's great though. But guys, I really appreciate so much you uh, you having me on uh, and talking about it. There's so many so many cool things as as we talked about to see. But I think the diversity of the collection, um, the intention behind it from Jim Irsay and why he does it means everything to me. Uh, yeah. Certainly, we, we take you know a lot of responsibility and, and custodial care. I've talked about that before with you. Um, yeah. is very important to us. So, you know, we try to engage with people that, um, you know, Jim Canary that looks after uh, uh, the, the paper, the uh, artifacts that we have, it, to me, is one of the best paper preservationists in the world. He's at Indiana University Lilly Library and mm -hmm. uh, a wonderful man. Um, he's been to Tibet many times and he's given talks in Berlin. And uh, he, he knows, uh, to me, just so, so much about how to preserve paper artifacts. Uh, and he's been looking after that scroll for many, many years, Mr. Say acquired it. That was the first major uh, uh, purchase that Mr. Say made back in 2001. And Jim Canary's been a part of the collection and everything we're doing on tour. Uh, and before that, even, he precedes my involvement. So we've got a lot of specialists and a lot of people we can call on uh, to help us take care, take uh, these artifacts. That is amazing. Um, you've mentioned that you mentioned that you're going to Boston and then you've mentioned another city that, uh, is after that, that, uh, that I will reserve for a much more formal announcement later on. Um, but where are some places online that our audience can go in and see if the Ursa collection is coming towards them? Well, that's great. Thanks so much for asking. Um, I have a bunch of social media channels here, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok at the Jim Irsay Collection on Instagram and on down the line at the at the Jim Irsay Collection. Twitter is simply at Irsay Collection. It's a little bit shorter, but the others, um, if you say the Jim Irsay Collection, obviously Irsay I R S A Y, then you should be able to find us on social media. Um, we certainly have a, a, a nice landing page that talks about and has photos of and some video of the places that we've been. Um, you know, some of the cities we've even talked about going back to. Uh, the, the event we had in Los Angeles was not quite as large and, and, and um, a little bit more private event that was really geared towards that 100th anniversary of Kerouac's birth. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about going back there because we've played places like the Hammerstein Ballroom. Um, we played uh, the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium in San Francisco. These places hold, you know, 8,500 people or more. Uh, this weekend in, in Boston will be uh, at TD Garden, of course, for basketball that can hold 18,000 plus. Not quite as many with our our, our band, but certainly um, if you haven't got a if you haven't got a reservation yet to come see it, go to jimmersaycollection.com and get your registration in to come see us this coming Saturday night in Boston, uh, or just check the website and see when it's coming to a city near yours to to you, I should say. For sure. Awesome. Yeah, we're gonna have to go, Trey. <laughs> uh, so when we go on our U.S. tour, yeah. uh, there we you are. We will have to stop by. Um, Larry, this has been an incredible time speaking with you. Um, you are an incredible advocate for this collection, and I have to say, you speak with such positivity. You are clearly so engaged in this conversation and being supportive of it, and it has really spoken volumes of it th through the time that we've been speaking today. That's really kind of you. Thanks. It touches me. It does. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's, it's I considered a huge privilege uh, that Jim Mersey has asked me to uh, to oversee the collection. And, um, you know, uh, it takes a lot of people to make it happen with his direction. But uh, you guys are most kind. I really enjoy your podcast. And thanks so much for having me on. And, and uh, please, anybody listening, tell your friends, family, anyone 
that may be near, uh, they, they really are going to miss out if it's uh, in your city and they didn't take the time to come see us. Uh, would love to have everyone who can come see all yeah. these cool artifacts. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Thank you. Uh, as we close out today's episode, uh, we want to remind you that this episode, along with every episode moving forward, is always in memory of Joe Capone, our moderator, fellow comedian, passionate courager, and greatly missed friend. You can find us pretty much wherever you uh, tune into podcasts. For updates, announcements, and more, please follow us on social media under Modern Romantic. Uh, thank you, everybody, and have a cool day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, guys. I appreciate it. Take care. <laughs>